Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Vijay Peria Coyle's Healthcare Leadership Podcast. Through stories from international healthcare leaders, this podcast will reveal the secrets to becoming a transformational healthcare leader. Our guest today is Dr. Lloyd Miner, the Dean of Stanford University School of Medicine. Welcome, Lloyd. Well, thank you, Vijay, and it's a pleasure to be with you. And I'm so honored that we're uh, having this discussion today. And I want to thank you for your leadership and uh, for the many lives you've impacted through your research and your teaching uh, and the care that you provide. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you can get us started by telling us a little bit about your uh, early life, some uh, events that were particularly formative, in shaping the rest of your life and career? You know, I came from a, a lower middle class household. My dad was an accountant. My mom was a kindergarten teacher. The other thing about my childhood that I was defining is, as a kid in elementary school, I'd been a pretty active uh, and precocious, uh, not sit in one place type kid. When I was 11, I started playing the cello. and. Uh, cellos remained an important part of my life. It was really through music that I learned self-discipline. And as a kid learning to play an instrument, uh, you know, the brain is so incredibly plastic. You make progress really quickly. I found that, um, look, if I, if I practice and I apply myself, uh, I can make this instrument do some really interesting things. And that carried over to my studies as well. And I, I credit music with enabling me to be a better student and, and to discover that if I set my mind to something, I could probably accomplish it. Is there an event that you can remember from your early life that had a big influence on your career? The most pivotal event in my early life was uh, when I was 13. I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. When I was in elementary school, uh, kids went to the schools in their neighborhoods, and the neighborhoods in Little Rock were segregated. So I'd gone to a white elementary school and a white junior high school in seventh and eighth grade. And then in ninth grade, I, the federal courts initiated busing uh, to achieve desegregation of the Little Rock schools. So I was bused from uh, my neighborhood uh, across town to a, a neighborhood that was predominantly black. And I went to Paul Lawrence Dunbar Junior High School that morning in September of, of 1971 that what I had been told as a white kid was separate but equal, uh, was certainly separate but anything but, but equal. Dunbar Junior High, uh, the plaster was peeling from the walls, the banisters were missing from the stairwells. There were very few books in the library. and. Perhaps my most vivid memory was that the books on the lower shelves of the library had had their pages and their bindings eaten away by rats. And these were the bitter fruits of racial prejudice. And um, it was an epiphany for me. And, and I think for, for all, all the kids that were engaged in this great social transformation and social experiment, I think if I had been um, a black kid, knowing all along that my schools, the schools for black children were not equal in resources to the school schools for white children, I think I would have been bitter now to see white kids coming to my school. But that wasn't at all the case. There was 
a real atmosphere of openness, of engagement, of building a community together. And it was quite compelling for me. And it led me at that age uh, to really want to do something in my life, in my career, to promote social justice and racial equity. So did you stay there for uh, high school? Thank you, I did. I, I went to Little Rock Central High, the school that was um, very famously desegregated in 1957. I, I felt like I had a wonderful high school experience. I went to a very large high school. There were uh, 600 kids in our graduating class, our senior graduating class, and really covered the gamut. Uh, it was a very racially uh, diverse class. And um, and I, I treasured that experience. And all along you were still playing music, right? So where did you go off to college? I knew I wanted to leave Arkansas uh, for for college. And I, I haven't lived in Arkansas since I left when I was 18 to go away to college. I looked at the Ivies and, and was admitted to Harvard, Yale, and Brown. But I, I felt Brown was like a manageable size for a kid coming from uh, from Little Rock, and I was a part of the undergraduate medical school continuum program there. The year that I went to Brown, there were actually three of us from Arkansas, another person from Little Rock and a person from Dumas, Arkansas, that entered Brown that year. I think there was a record crop of students from Arkansas to Brown. It was a great experience, and it was a good match for me. Did you stay on to do your med school at Brown? I did. I did. I stayed at at Brown for medical school. Um, Brown was also important in my life uh, because during freshman week, I met uh, the woman who uh, later would become my wife, uh, much later actually. It was uh, 11 years after we, we met uh, as uh, Frosh at Brown, who actually started dating when we purely by coincidence wound up in Chicago together. We shared those roots and that's, that's been important for both of us in our lives together. Oh, that's a wonderful story. How did you end up in Chicago? I decided in medical school that, uh, that I wanted to do the, the specialty that no one could pronounce, including people in the field, otolaryngology, ear, nose, and throat, and um, that I wanted to train in the science of that field as well. At that time, people going into ENT, almost everyone did two years of general surgery. So I did my two years of general surgery at Duke. And then I went to Chicago, to the University of Chicago, as a postdoctoral fellow with Jay Goldberg, who at the time, I think, was recognized as really the leader in vestibular physiology in the world. And I had read his papers as an undergraduate at Brown. He accepted me into his lab, and um, I was there. I was a postdoc for four years uh, in his lab, and then I did my otolaryngology residency at the University of Chicago. So as you were doing this, any challenges that uh, you had to uh, overcome during training? Any stories for us? Well, there, there were a lot of stories. I First, I, I enjoyed my training. I mean, time has a way of, you know, healing all wounds. And um, I think for me, the, the biggest challenges were at the time, I was training there, particularly in, in my field of otolaryngology, there were not really established pathways for training physician scientists. Uh, I, I pretty much had to carve that pathway. And there was a lot of skepticism when, you know, I did my general surgery and then went into the lab. 
there were some that were skeptical. Well, you can't really interrupt your clinical training in that way. Um, and there were, when I was looking for jobs, for example, and I knew I wanted to be a physician scientist, there were some leading departments in the country in which I interviewed that said, well, yeah, you're really well trained as a surgeon. You're really well trained as a scientist. Now, which one do you want to do? And it's like, well, I want to do both. And it was like, well, no, you, you can't do both. And I, I did do both. And my most impactful contributions have come from the fusion of the two fields. The problems that I addressed in my research were more directly, you know, raised by and related to some of the clinical problems that I saw in patients. There wasn't a buy-in that that was a synergy that could be developed uh, in, in our field at the time I was entering it. And that, that did pose some challenges. It's a lot of fun if you're willing to put in the time and, and sort of deal with having to wear two hats at once. Uh, but that, that is also some of the excitement of having an involvement both in the care of patients and in the surgical practice of our specialty and then also in, in discovery-driven research. It's interesting, right? We look back on our lives and we now diagnose retrospectively that we had so much fun at that time, we just did not know it while <laughs> it was happening. Exactly. That's true. Uh, you, men you mentioned one of your mentors. Where Was it one primary mentor or a cadre of mentors uh, who were helpful or impactful in shaping your career? Well, certainly my scientific career was shaped most by uh, Jay Goldberg, who was my, my mentor at the University of Chicago and whom I um, had the privilege of, of interacting with really throughout uh, his life. And he, he uh, died a few years ago, but uh, was very vibrant uh, well into his 80s and uh, just was a Renaissance person in so many regards and a truly brilliant scientist. I learned how to think like a scientist from Jay and, and learned the joy of, of, of learning and understanding things and, and the joy of discovery. And that there's no greater sort of meaning and joy than, than that in a, in a scientific career. Last part of my training was a clinical fellowship in Nashville, Tennessee with Mike Glasscock, who was affiliated with, with Vanderbilt. And Mike was a, just an absolutely superb surgeon. Who's a superb technical surgeon, but also what those of us who work with Mike learned was really how to think about an operation and how to not only think about an operation, think about the organization of a practice. On the operative side, you know, Mike could break even the most complex surgical procedure down to a series of steps and milestones. And if you followed those steps and if you understood those steps and their significance, uh, you would almost certainly be doing well by your patient and it would keep you out of trouble and keep the uh, keep you from doing harm to your patient um, and so it really made surgical education very methodical and in thinking about a practice very methodical and i you know i had gotten some of that during residency but but mike glasscock really elevated ear surgery and and sort of the technique and the method of ear surgery uh, to new heights through his career. And he was an outstanding teacher uh, to those of us who were his fellows. 
Yeah, I've always felt that <clears throat> when you become an attending, that's when you become a serious student. Until yeah. then, you're kind of training to be a serious student. So it's yeah. very well stated. Yeah. From Vanderbilt, when did you get to Hopkins? You know, I looked at a number of faculty jobs and the one that I felt would, would be best in terms of enabling me to develop the type of career that I wanted to develop was at Hopkins. And it, it was it was the case. I mean, I I really treasure the years. I spent 19 years at Johns Hopkins, uh, 16 of them in the Department of Otolaryngology, and then three as provost. I think several things about Hopkins Medicine. One is that there's this culture going back 125 plus years of clinician scientists. I mean, the great, the founders of modern medicine um, were at Hopkins, William Osler, William, William Stuart Halstead, um, uh, Welch. Uh, they, they, they all spent formative parts of their career building Johns Hopkins medicine and public health in the early days. And that tradition of you're first and foremost going to be an outstanding clinician and you're going to contribute to the scientific body of knowledge that enables you and others to be better at treating or preventing disease. That is just in the walls at Hopkins. And it it's a culture that has been very virtuous in enabling Hopkins to withstand uh, a number of challenges and vicissitudes over its, its many years of existence. And um, I had wonderful colleagues there. Can you describe your faculty job search? What were the factors that you were weighing as you were looking for faculty positions? When I was looking at faculty jobs, I didn't want to be the only ear surgeon at an institution. I wanted to have colleagues because I knew that if I was the only person treating complex ear diseases, um, that wasn't going to give me much of an opportunity to pursue independent research. And it worked out great. And um, so I was in the department for 10 years, built a very successful career as a clinician scientist with a large lab. And one of the things I discovered that I wasn't necessarily expecting is that I really, really enjoyed mentoring people. I, I hadn't done it very much during my 11 years of postgraduate training. I mean, a bit as a chief resident, when I established my lab, there were some wonderful people who came to work in the lab. And uh, I'm confident they taught me more than I taught them. I, I learned so much from them and I, I just so much enjoyed working with them that then after being on the faculty 10 years, the department chair position opened up and I threw my hat in the ring for that position and was asked to chair the department. One of the reasons I was interested in doing that was I, I had enjoyed mentoring the people in my field and, and I thought that being a department chair is a chance to lead and and help people build their careers in, a, in, in other areas of our specialty. Many of the people that I had a role in um, recruiting and in mentoring are now leading departments themselves or, or in other major leadership positions uh, at Hopkins and elsewhere. And I feel feel good about being able to in some way help them in their careers and their lives and certainly stayed in touch with them as, as they've continued to build their careers and have impact through their leadership. As you think about your career, what would you identify as the biggest career leap that you've ever made? After being department chair for six years and 
when Ron Daniels became president at, at Johns Hopkins in, um, in 2009, he was looking for a provost from Johns Hopkins Medicine because Johns Hopkins Medicine is such a big part of the university writ large. And uh, so I was asked to look at the provost position. The provost position would be very different, and it certainly was, it would extend my breadth as a leader and, and, and enable me to have impact in other areas and also uh, just be an intellectually engaging thing to do at, at that point in my career. So I made the leap, uh, which was, by the way, the biggest career leap I've made, even though I was still at Hopkins, um, going from department chair to provost was a huge, huge leadership step. And, um, and then it became even more complex because about three months after I began as provost, uh, early one morning, Ron Daniels, uh, our president, called me to say that, uh, and, and he's spoken about this publicly uh, many, many times, that he was going out on medical leave uh, because he had a tumor of the pancreas, uh, which he has done very, very well with, returning to full health, but that he would have to have surgery and that there would be a period of recovery. Three months into the provostship, then I, I found myself you know, performing activities related to both the provost and, and the president. And uh, that was certainly a steep learning curve, but others stepped in and the values of partnership and team building were really very, very evident and strong during that period and since, and certainly learned more about leadership during that three years than any other time in my career. From Hopkins, you moved to Palo Alto to become our dean. How did that come about? Both our kids were going away to, our daughter was in college, our son was just entering college. So we were about to become empty nesters. We moved the nest across the, uh, across the country. My move to Stanford came about because as provost at Hopkins, uh, Hopkins is a member of the so-called Ivy Plus group. And so we had Ivy Plus provost meeting and I got to know John Echemendi through those meetings. When this position opened, he asked me if I might come out and talk to the committee. I had just led the search that led to Paul Rothman being hired as the Dean and CEO of Johns Hopkins Medicine. John Echemini invited me out. I, I met with the search committee, talked about our search there, and also in the context of, of that visit, uh, discussed the possibility of me coming here. And so after a few more visits and interviews, uh, I was offered the position here. That must have been a time of great transition. Your children moved out, you were empty nesters, and you moved from Baltimore all the way to Palo Alto across the country. Was it very stressful? There's a box on my desk. It's a box for business cards. And my, uh, my wife gave me this box when I moved from being department chair to, uh, to provost at Hopkins. And the box has an inscription on it attributed to Lord Chesterfield. And it says, in order to discover new oceans, you have to have the courage to lose sight of the shore. And that I refer to that quote often because I think it's so true that we have to lean into areas of discomfort, areas of uncertainty, and it's through doing that that we'll have our maximum impact. It's interesting that you mentioned oceans. In reflecting on your career trajectory, it seems like each time you summit one mountain, you then deliberately place yourself at the base of the next mountain. That's the pattern that I'm hearing. But that takes, you know, tremendous 
um, emotional fortitude, right? Where you feel like you just summit one place and you just want to relax and enjoy the view and stay there and, uh, you know, be there. But instead of that, each time you've gone very quickly to the base of the next mountain, how does one bring oneself to that, you know, readiness? Well, I think one thing is I, I've always enjoyed the journey. It, it's nice to reach a destination. It's nice to reach a goal uh, that could be, you know, publishing a major paper, uh, getting a grant, reaching a milestone in terms of a management or leadership opportunity. But the journey is, is the most meaningful aspect. It's, it's the aspect where you learn the most from the journey. I mean, once you're there, it's okay, we're here. <laughs> and that's fine. But, uh, but it's, it's through the journey that you learn the most about yourself. And, and it's through the journey that you ultimately contribute the most, I think. And that that's been the philosophy that that I've followed is that I always want have found it engaging to think about, uh, well, where are we going? How are we going to get there? And how do I interact with others to bring them into the journey as well? Lloyd, if you had to name one thing, what would you name as a vital ingredient for success in an academic environment? One thing about academic leadership is it, it really is about building the partnerships and coalitions. I'm most effective when it almost seems like I don't have many ideas because the ideas I have have been embraced by and to an extent owned by others. And they're going to be far more effective if others are firmly committed to those ideas and goals. And they're not seen as my ideas or my goals. They're seen as the organization's ideas and goals. And therefore, multiple people in the organization are committed to and dedicated to making sure that they're successful. That's a large part of what academic leadership is about. When talking about leadership, Experts often talk about the vision of a leader as being a very important ingredient. Do you agree with that? What is your take on that? A vision is important, but oftentimes people put the vision first rather than listening and learning and developing an understanding of the environment and seeing where the opportunities are. And if you put vision ahead of those processes, the vision may actually get in the way of the success of the organization. Therefore, I've when I talk about leadership principles, I never list vision as being a core leadership pr principle. When I think about core principles, I think about listening and learning, I think about building diverse teams, enabling those diverse teams to succeed, managing as well as leading, and then planning transitions, transitions organizationally, transitions across the board, planning for the future. But vision is derivative from each of those elements. It's important, but I think more leaders, particularly in academia, have gotten in trouble by putting vision in front of, vision's an enabler. It's an enabler of success for individuals in organization, organizations, but it has to derive from other more fundamental processes. Reflecting on that, you're talking about the journey and the process approach and enjoying the journey as you go along and bringing others along 
as opposed to waiting for particular points where you can relish your experiences. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, pivoting a little bit, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, life-work balance? Because just reflecting on your career, obviously you've been extraordinarily effective in all the things that you've done. How about life-work balance? How does that fit into all this? Right. You know, it's something I've thought about at various points in my career. My, maybe my thinking has changed um, as my, my life has advanced. I, I want to say I've, I've been fortunate along my journey in life these past now almost 34 years and having my my wife my life partner uh my closest advisor you know uh with me every step of the way and certainly when we were raising our children i was there for our children but i was not the major care provider uh or parent in their in their early upbringing that was during the time that i was building my faculty career, building my research lab. Uh, and I feel so fortunate to have had a, a life partner who understood that, uh, who was supportive, and also who kept me grounded through that, that process. And, and at times, uh, candidly and frankly, reminded me of the other things that, that should and must remain a part of my life. I think as, you know, as our children grew older and went away to college, then it, it, it gave my wife and I an opportunity to explore our relationship in different ways. Now, during COVID, we've spent our evenings together, but, uh, but mainly hunkering down and uh, keeping ourselves and hopefully the community safe. And we just set up uh, a small gym in our garage. Since being in California, no one uses the garage for cars. And also I was able to start playing the cello regularly again, which I, has been wonderful. And I, I will never take any more cello sabbaticals as I've done from various, during various past periods of my life, but uh, I'm gonna continue to play regularly now uh, throughout. And I think with the sort of more normalized travel schedule that that will be, that will be possible in ways that it wasn't prior to COVID. It's so true about um, uh, how the pandemic has actually uh, telescoped us. It almost, we fell through like a little wormhole there. And uh, while there were so many negative things, we did become so much better at doing things virtually. And it's been remarkable to me how all of our patients, even people we would um, typically think as having struggles with technology, even our older patients with various you know chronic serious illnesses do so beautifully uh, in the virtual um, environment so it's definitely been a blessing in that sense uh, as you think about new people coming into academia what advice would you give them based on lessons learned from your own pathway i don't think there's ever been a better time to enter academia and life sciences, biomedicine, and the broadly related fields. Never been a greater, better time than today. This in so many ways is gonna be the century of life sciences. For young people entering today, uh, there, there are just so many ways that discoveries are impacting our ability to provide health and healthcare. For those entering academia, academic medicine today, take the long view, uh, 
the 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 people with the long view are the ones ultimately who are successful and meaningful success in any area particularly any area related to biosciences the life sciences health healthcare any meaningful success comes from lots of process and lots of years devoted to those processes there's never been a better time and and i would say enjoy the journey and if you're not enjoying the journey then step back and think about the journey and refocus your journey because everyone i'm convinced has a journey that will be most meaningful for them and so our challenge is to find that journey for ourselves and then pursue it uh, with vigor and vitality Thank you so much, Lloyd, for taking the time to talk with us today. I know how busy you are, and uh, it has been a fantastic, really authentic, wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. For more leadership podcasts, visit us at respect.stanford.edu.